Well, we've been studying Joseph's life for the last five weeks, and this is a culmination of the story. It's a very exciting story about how God works through Joseph. And we've been focusing on a biblical principle that we see here, and it is focus on God in the midst of circumstances. Focus on God in the midst of circumstances. As we've said so many times, we tend to focus on the circumstances. We tend to focus on what's not going right, the pain, the frustration, and we feel trapped. Instead of that type of focus, we need to look at God, look at God, our hope and our salvation and our Savior. Uh, We need to focus on God's presence, the fact that He's always with us. The Lord was with Joseph, we've seen throughout uh, this series. God's power was always enabling Joseph to do supernatural things. And God's plan for Joseph. Just a recap for those who haven't been with us. Uh, Joseph was born uh, to his father Jacob, and they had 12 sons who were to become the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Joseph was unfortunately favored by his father. His father put a beautiful coat together for him, and he treated him much better than the other brothers, and his brothers were very angry, and they hated Joseph for it. And then on top of that, Joseph had some dreams where he predicted that one day his brothers would bow down to him, and he shared those dreams with his brothers. That added fuel to the fire until it came to the point where they took Joseph and they threw him in a cistern hoping to kill him, but then they changed their minds and decided to sell him into slavery. The slavery, uh, Joseph that is, was sold into slavery. And he ended up in Potiphar's house, who was a captain of the guard, head of the secret service for Pharaoh. He also was the overseer of the political prison, the dungeon, that Joseph eventually ended up in. But again, God was with Joseph, even in that foreign land where he knew no one. He kept focusing on God and experienced his presence, his power, and his plan for his life. Joseph did so well in Potiphar's house that he became a head, the head of Potiphar's house. He took care of everything for Potiphar. Potiphar didn't have to worry about anything. Well, unfortunately, Potiphar's wife wanted to go to bed with Joseph, and Joseph said no, and Potiphar's wife accused him of rape, and then he got thrown in prison. So things were not going well for Joseph, very difficult circumstances, but he kept his eyes on God. He realized God was with him, that God empowered him, and that God had a plan for his life, so he excelled in prison, eventually took over the prison. (laughs) You know, amazing leader, this Joseph guy. And he did well there, and he happened to interpret some dreams for some of Pharaoh's officials who happened to end up there, the cupbearer and the baker. And he said to the cupbearer, who was eventually going to be restored to his position with Pharaoh, hey, tell the Pharaoh that I'm a... I was sold into slavery, and I was falsely accused, and I shouldn't be in here. Well, it took two years uh, for that to happen when Pharaoh had a dream that no one could interpret. All the dream experts were clueless, and, oh, the cupbearer, by the hand of God and God's sovereignty, remembered that Joseph was in prison and he could interpret dreams, so they brought Joseph up. He interpreted the dream. The dream basically stated that there was going to be seven years of abundance in Egypt, when the grain was going to grow like wildfire, when the economy was going to boom like no one had seen it before, 
And then there was going to be seven years of famine, seven years of drought, seven years of depression in Egypt. And Joseph gave the advice to Pharaoh that he should take 20% of the grain each year during the good years and put that in storehouses to provide during the famine years. And Pharaoh said, well, you're the guy who interpreted the dreams. We're going to put you in charge again. Pharaoh was focusing, or excuse me, Joseph was focusing on God. His presence, his power, his plan. Whether he was the second command, the prime minister of Egypt, or whether he was in some prison. You see, his strategy for life never changed. And that's what we need to learn from this. Whether things are going really well for us in life, or whether they're going very poorly. We need to focus on God in the midst of of our circumstances and remember that he's there with us even though we might not feel him that his power is available at every moment and that he has a plan for our lives well we're going to pick up this last part of joseph's life and we're going to cover a lot of territory we're going to go like from chapter 41 to chapter 50 so i would really encourage you this week in your time alone with god to maybe take a chapter or two a day and read through this it's a very powerful story, so we're going to sum it up quickly, but I would encourage you to chew on it uh, this week. It has a lot of tremendous truths that we're going to look at. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 41, verse 53. It says there, The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph and do what he tells you. Again, Joseph had the food, and he sold the food to the people of Egypt they were provided for. This was a regional famine. So people from around that area of the world were starving. People in Canaan, where Joseph's family was. So let's go down to the land of Canaan. In Genesis 42, verse 1, When Jacob learned that they were there was grain in Egypt. He said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? <laughs> I love that line. Why do you just keep looking at each other? Now, why were they looking at each other? Well, they had no TV to look at, right? If you have no TV, you just look at each other. <laughs> you, you know, moms, you're in the kitchen and you're working like a slave and the kids are out there looking at the TV and you say, Why are you just looking at the TV? Look around. See what's happening. Work needs to be done. That's what Jacob was saying. He continued, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may not, we may live and not die. This serious situation. Come on, guys. Let's do something. Verse 3, Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So, ten went down. Joseph was out of the picture. Benjamin was left. Benjamin was just one year old when Joseph was sold into slavery. <clears throat> this is 22 years later. So he's about 23 years old. And Benjamin now had become the favorite of his father Jacob. Favoritism is wrong in families, and we see in this situation why, in terms of what happened to Joseph, but now he chooses Benjamin as his favorite. And he's 
just heart broken over Joseph these last 22 years. The brothers, of course, lied. They killed a goat and put some of the blood on that beautiful coat and said that Joseph had been attacked and killed. And so he had lost Joseph, and he did not want to lose Benjamin. So he said, Benjamin is not going with you. So they went on their own. Now Joseph was governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. That sound familiar? They bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied to buy food. Now, what a powerful moment. You can imagine that Joseph has thought a lot about his brothers over the years, especially in prison, right? A lot of time to think. And he probably had daydreamed about the day when they might show up because other people probably had come from Canaan for grain. And all of a sudden, they were standing before him, the brothers he hadn't seen for 22 years. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams. It all came full circle. When he was standing there in front of his brothers, he remembered those dreams he had as a teenager, that they would one day bow down to him, and that was now coming true. Well, he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see why our land... And where our land is unprotected. Now, why was Joseph being so harsh with them? Because I really believe at this point that Joseph had forgiven his brothers. So why was he testing them? Well, I believe because he wanted to see if he could trust them. For those of you who have sinned against another person, and you wonder why they still don't trust you, <laughs> well, friends, what you need to realize is that trust is the most precious commodity on earth. Trust. The relationship that you have with people is built on trust. The deeper the relationship, the greater the trust. Unfortunately, this precious commodity of trust can be broken, can be severed, can be destroyed within a moment if you lie to someone or if you hurt them in a deep way. Most common illustration is when there's an affair in a married relationship. The woman can forgive her husband or vice versa, but it takes sometimes years to rebuild that trust. Many times I've worked with couples and they make rules. I can call you at any time and you need to pick up that cell phone and you need to tell me where you're at because the trust is so fragile. So my challenge to you and myself is that we need to protect the trust that we have in our relationships. And you've, if you've broken that trust, and it seems like it's taken a long time for that person to put trust in you again, you need to be patient because you were the one who broke the trust. You need to wait for that person to trust, trust you again. You need to pray that God would allow that person to trust you again. That's why we need to be so careful in our relationships. Well, he needed to rebuild the trust uh, with his brothers. He, he was concerned about a couple different things. First of all, number one was his brother Benjamin. And we see this throughout the story. It's all about Benjamin. Where is Benjamin? Is he alive? How 
You treated him. He was concerned about his father, the health of his father. Was he still alive? And he was concerned about their character. Had they changed? Had they changed from being the selfish, violent men that had thrown him into a cistern, that had sold him into slavery? He wondered about their character. Well, verse 16, send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so your words may be tested to see if you're telling the truth. If you're not, then surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. So he throws them into prison. Again, I believe the same prison that he was in, the political prison, the captain of the guard, Potiphar's prison. He sent them there. Well, I believe he was putting his strategy together about how to test them. The first thing he says, okay, I want one of you to go back and get Benjamin, and now he's going to rethink it. But I want to stop here, and I want to point out one thing, and that is that Joseph has all the power, all the power over his brothers now. Here are guys who did the worst thing possible. They tried to kill him, and they sold him into slavery. And he can do anything he wants, and nobody will ever question him. He has all the power and more power to take revenge against his brothers. He can leave them in the dungeon, and nobody will ever ask. I'll never hear from Joseph again. He can have them killed. Nobody will care. He can put them into slave camps where they do hard labor for the rest of their lives. He can use his power to create unbearable misery for his brothers. He can do the things that we only can fantasize about, <laughs> right? When somebody has hurt you, let's be honest here, we have revenge fantasies. Like, okay, what can I do to hurt that person? What can I say to hurt that person? How can I gossip to hurt that person? Or what do I wish upon them? And we think of all these things because they have hurt us so much and we want them to suffer not what we suffered, but way beyond what we have suffered because they chose to hurt us. Now, Joseph is one of the few people who had all the power to take out revenge on the people who had hurt him without any type of repercussions. So this is a test. This is a test for Joseph. And, of course, he passes the test. But how do you and I do in relationship to these tests about revenge? We want to take revenge, don't we? We talked about that during our Romans 12 series. We see Romans 12:19 that we studied. Do not take revenge. Now, God knows we all want to take revenge. That's our sinful nature. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Let God be the judge, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. That's my job, God says. I will repay, says the Lord. I am the judge. I'm the one who's going to mete out the justice. That's not your job. We say, no, I want to take that job from you. I want to serve you <laughs> this way, okay? I want to minister to people. I want to be the judge. I want to have the hammer and all that kind of thing. God says, no. Well, friends, we need to forgive because God forgave us. Remember we talked about the forgiveness process? The fact that you can forgive a person, but it doesn't mean that you're going to just feel wonderful about them and want to spend time with them. Yeah. It's a process. So the first point in the process is realizing that you need to forgive that person. And so you forgive them. 
You say, I forgive that person, Lord. So you forgive them at 1140. And then at 1141, you get mad at them again. <laughs> Why didn't I do that? <laughs> so you need to forgive them again. And then your mind, you know, comes back to the message. And at about 12 o'clock, I'm still mad at that person. So you have to affirm the forgiveness again. And maybe if you start out forgiving a person, you need to forgive them 100 times today. But it only happens through the power of Jesus Christ. We can't do it on our own. It's just not enough to say, oh, Jesus Christ forgave me, so now I'm inspired to forgive other people. Inspiration doesn't cut it. It's only the power of God flowing through you that enables you to forgive, to heal your heart, to heal your mind of the pain and the scars. So every day as you seek to forgive someone, you need to go to God and say, God, I can't do this on my own. I pray that you would heal my heart, enable me to forgive this person enable me to do it day after day week after week sometimes year after year depending on how deep that pain was and eventually you'll get to the point of being or having a sense of forgiving that person and you no longer harbor ill will against them you want the best for them you want good things to happen to their life that doesn't mean you're going to be buddy buddy again necessarily or have the same type of relationship but it does mean that you wish them well you pray for them when you think of them uh, you take an opportunity to to make contact with them if it's appropriate but that is a supernatural process that is empowered by jesus christ that is a forgiveness process and i believe in those 22 years that joseph was separated from his brothers that he worked through that process. I don't know how long it took him, but he worked through that process. He had forgiven his brothers when they showed up. Who do you need to forgive today? Think about it. Who's a person that comes to your mind? And have you forgiven them? And maybe when I taught this message about six weeks ago, you thought of somebody, then you forgot about it. <laughs> You're still as mad as that person as you were six weeks ago. When I ask you to think about, think about a person, so okay. that's the way we are, right? Well, I'm here to remind you. <laughs> I'm here to remind myself. We got to continue to forgive. We got to make it a job one. I mean, to put it down in our prayer list. Put it, write it down every day. I got to keep working on forgiving that person because otherwise, I'm just going to hang on to it and it's going to tear me up inside and I'm going to be filled with bitterness and hatred and. Again, you say to yourself, there's no way I can forgive that person. That's true. There is no way you can forgive that person. But by the power of God, you can forgive that person. Amen to that. All right. Well, let's go back to our story. It's interesting here. Joseph brings his brothers back to his palace out of prison. And he says, okay, here's the deal. I changed it. I want most of you to go back. I just want one person to stay here. I have some leverage. I put one person in prison. It turns out to be Simeon. And the rest of you are going to go back, and you're going to bring Benjamin back with you. Now, what happens here is after he talks to them about this, they start to talk in Hebrew. And they don't think he can understand, but obviously he can. Verse 21, They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen. That's why this distress 
has come upon us. This is very interesting. They didn't know the prime minister was Joseph, but they made the connection immediately. The reason that we are being judged is because we did a terrible thing to our brother. And it gives us insight into the early story that we didn't get. It didn't say when Joseph was sold into slavery that he pleaded for his life, but here they say it. He pleaded for his life. So here, the 17-year-old kid, he's got his brothers around him, and they are throwing him into throwing him into a cistern. Uh, he believes they're going to kill him, and then he's sold into slavery. And all along, he's pleading for his life. Please don't kill me, guys. Please don't kill your brother. Please don't sell me into slavery. Can you imagine the fear that Joseph must have felt as he was at the mercy of his brothers who hated him? And this all comes back to them. They live with this every day for 22 years. And they put it right together. Hey, we're being judged for the way we treated Joseph. Now notice what it goes on to say in verse 24. He turned away from them and began to weep. Did you know in this story that we're going to talk about today, Joseph wept four different times. Now he was no wimp. He was a man's man. This guy was the primo leader of Egypt. People respected Joseph incredibly. And he didn't often cry in public. But he cried at this point. He turned away and he wept. Why did he weep? He wept because of the pain. He wept because of everything that was going on. And again, we're not... Sure, sometimes why we weep. When I weep, I've probably got like ten things I weep about. Because <laughs> I don't weep that often. But uh, I, I do weep, and, and it's just like when, I, when all the stressors build up in my life, and there's so much going on, and so much confusion, and I just am out of energy, and I, I just let it all out. And, and that's where Joseph was. But, I mean, this was 22 years of emotion. I'm sure he had wept many different times. Uh, throughout those 22 years, but here he has his brothers in front of them and they are admitting that they were wrong, that they did the wrong thing, that they heard the pleas of Joseph. And even as Joseph goes through this, he can even hear his own voice, I believe. He can remember what he said to his brothers as they sold him into slavery. How painful this is. But it's so rich to know that Joseph was like me. That Joseph experienced pain. That Joseph experienced fear. That Joseph didn't walk through this whole story like a cakewalk. No, there was pain involved with this. And it was, it was so rich now as he stood before his brothers. He had about three days to process this. But as he hears his brothers reliving what they had done for him and how bad they felt about it, he was overwhelmed again. But then turned back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon take them taken from them and bound before their eyes. Simeon goes off to the dungeon and they go back to dad in Canaan. Well, they go back to dad and they get back there with the grain and they open up their bags. And as they open up their bags, they realize that the pouch of silver that they had given in order to pay for the grain was in their grain sack. Well, that's not good. <laughs> It's like they stole it, but they didn't put it there. So they start freaking out about that. And 
Then they have to tell dad. They know dad's not going to say yes, but dad, we got to go get Simeon. He's in jail. But the only way that's going to happen is we have to take Benjamin. And Jacob says, no possible way. That is not going to happen. Poor Simeon, you know, he's left there, but uh, Benjamin's not going down because Jacob can just see that uh, the same thing would happen to Benjamin. So Simeon's left in jail, and they continue to eat bread and water every day until they run out of grain. And Jacob says, okay, you guys need to go back and get some more grain. They say, Dad, did you not hear us? Okay, he will not give us anything until we bring Benjamin. And finally, Jacob breaks down and says, okay, now we don't want to die, so you can take Benjamin. And they guarantee their lives, and they promise that everything will be okay, even though they don't know that. So they all head back down to Egypt with Benjamin this time. And they're told this time to go to Joseph's private residence. Very unusual, his private residence. And they're invited to a banquet. A banquet. How unusual is that, right? Nothing. What's going on here? And so they all sit around this banquet table, and and uh, Joseph meets Benjamin for the first time. His brother. And what does Joseph do? Can you guess? He weeps. He weeps. Maybe he weeps for all the lost years. Twenty-two years he could have enjoyed a relationship with his brother, but those have been stolen from him. Maybe he weeps out of joy for the fact that Benjamin is not dead, that they did not treat Benjamin in the same way that they treated him. So, so he sits him down, and, and here's the crazy thing, is he sits him down in birth order. Now, these are all adults. What, what are the chances of seating 12 guys, uh, 11 guys, that is, in birth order. Well, maybe Simeon was still in prison. I'll bring it down to 10. <laughs> Who knows where Simeon is? <laughs> so you bring him down to 10, all right? And, and seating them in birth order. They, the Bible says they were astonished by it. They are going like, hey, wait a second. <laughs> you know, I mean, what, what, what just happened? And then they serve the meal. And what they do, what Joseph does, is he gives Benjamin a five-portion meal in the sense that everybody gets one portion, but Benjamin gets five portions. Now, that was very unusual in that day. When you were at a formal banquet like that, the only reason you got more portions is because you were a captain or a general or some type of leader. And here's the youngest son, obviously the younger person, getting more than anybody else. What was, what was Joseph doing? He was testing them to see how they would respond to that. Would they be jealous that Benjamin was being favored? Now they get through the meal and everything, and Joseph says, okay, you're all on your way. And so they leave with grain and with Benjamin. So they think, hey, things are going pretty well here. It worked out. And then all of a sudden, Joseph decides, part of his plan, he sends a posse after his brother's. And they catch up to the brothers, and he says, you guys need to stop. One of you stole the silver cup that Joseph drinks out of. And they're saying, wait, no, no possible way. I mean, we brought back the silver. 
Uh, no, none of us did. In fact, we're so sure that nobody did. You can kill the person who stole it and we'll all become your slaves. So they start going through the bags. And they open up a bag and they find the silver cup. And whose bag do you think that is? It's Benjamin. Benjamin. And they just are horrified. They're just horrified. So they're all taken back to the palace and they, they stand in front of Joseph. And they're just overcome. They're overcome with grief. How everything was going so well and now here we're back and Benjamin's going to be killed and and they're pleading that Joseph won't take Benjamin. And what what Joseph says is listen guys, you know what we're going to do here? Benjamin can just stay here as my slave. The rest of you guys can go home. All right? You can go on living your life. Just leave Benjamin here. What is Joseph doing? He's creating the same type of scenario that happened to him. You can abandon me and go on with your life. Now, are you going to make the same decision twice? Are you going to abandon Benjamin and go on with your life? This is a test that Joseph set up. Now listen to what Judah says, verse 33. Now then please let your servant, Judah, is speaking, remain here as my Lord's slave in the place of Benjamin the boy. And let Benjamin the boy return with his brothers. How can I, Judah, go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. So Judah's saying, listen, I can't do this. You've got to take me. Do anything you want with me, but Benjamin has to go back. I love Benjamin. I love my father. You can't do this. Now, it's interesting if we go back to the original story where Joseph was thrown into the cistern. What did Judah have to say back then? In Genesis 37, verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. Judah was the worst. He was saying, let's not just kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. And Joseph probably overheard this. And now he hears Judah saying, kill me. Make me a slave. Do what you want with me. Just don't do anything to Benjamin. He gets an A, doesn't he? And the brothers get an A on their test. Their character had changed. They realized they had done wrong. They were not going to do wrong again. And this is when Joseph is overcome. 45.1 Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. This time he just lets it all loose in front of his brothers. And they're wondering, whoa, what is going on here? You know, what's going to happen next? And, and, and he just wails. He wails. It just... The last 22 years, he was 17 when he was 
sold into slavery. He became the prime minister at 30. So maybe six or seven years of being in Potiphar's house, six or seven years of being in prison. Then he turned 30. And then the first seven years of the abundance, the first part of the dream, that is. And then there were two years of the famine. So he was about 39, 39 or 40. 22 years had passed. And all the emotions come back as he's about to reveal himself to his brothers. And, you know, as I think about what he might have been thinking, and who knows, but he was thinking about the pain. He was thinking about the joy. He was just overwhelmed with emotion. And, and again, this speaks so... This speaks so deeply to me. Because, again, I wept many times over issues in my life, issues in my kids' life, mistakes I've made, pain that I've experienced. And Joseph was just like me. He wept. In fact, some of you guys need to weep a lot more. I'll tell you that right now. It'd be interesting to know how many of you guys have gone without weeping, how many years it's been. (laughs) You need to go home and weep today. It's a healthy thing to do. It's better than a workout. Because, friends, when you don't weep, you've got all kinds of toxic stuff flowing around your body. You've got emotional energy that's all you know, bundled up, and you're getting angry about all kinds of stuff. If you're not weeping, you're angry, all right? Your family would rather have you weeping. I'll tell you that right now. And uh, you need to weep. I don't know. Play some sad music, you know. Think about the Cubs. I don't know. Whatever it takes, men, get yourself weeping. Very healthy thing to do. And, and Joseph just lets it out. And, and I think another thing here is that there's pain in obeying God. There's pain in obeying God. I believe that Joseph, when he was the leader of Potiphar's house, he could have easily escaped. He had all the resources. He could have gotten out of there. Potiphar trusted him in every way. He could have gotten out and gone back home. But he didn't. Because he was submitting to God's plan for his life. And friends, when you submit to God's plan, when you are obedient, it's painful sometimes. Sometimes when you obey God, people criticize you. Sometimes when you obey God, you become less secure. Sometimes when you obey God and you stay with the situation that God has put you in, it's painful. You have to sacrifice for God. And I believe that some of what he was crying about was just all the pain He'd experienced for all these years being a slave in prison. And again, friends, he was human. Many times he was filled with fear. So we need to realize Joseph was one of us. And we look at Joseph and say, wow, he's a super saint. No, he's just a guy who kept his eyes on God. And knew God was there and knew God was powerful and knew that God had a plan for his life. He had a strategy for his life. And that needs to be our strategy. But in the midst of that strategy, there's going to be pain. From many different sources. And our world is full of pain. But God will enable us. God will comfort us. God will protect us. We just give ourselves over to him. Joseph said to his brothers, verse 3, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified of his presence. That's probably the greatest understatement in Scripture. (laughs) Come on, right? And here they are in front of the prime minister. 
And they're bowing their faces to him. They're thinking, oh, man, this is all because of what we did to Joseph. They have no idea. I mean, this guy, you know, he looks like an Egyptian, right? Uh, He's got a clean, uh, shaven face, not a Hebrew beard. He's got the Egyptian hat. He's got the ornamented ornamented, uh, uh, robe on at this particular time. And he walks like an Egyptian. I had to throw that in there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he walks like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. He acts like an Egyptian. And now he's saying he's Joseph. Joseph, they're looking up. Can you imagine how they're feeling? He has just spoken in their minds a death sentence. They are dead, man. It is over. This guy has power over us. We are gone. No wonder they were so frightened. And Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. No way. <laughs> we'll stay back here. <laughs> All right? Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now, it's interesting. In the original language, come close to me is a very intimate type of term. And what some scholars believe is the only way Joseph could prove that he was their brother is that he showed them that he was circumcised. Because nobody else was circumcised in the world that day. Instead, for you know, people of the nation of Israel, it's kind of an odd way to ID yourself, but uh, that's what he did. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. So he says, hey, chill out, guys. <laughs> you know, God sent me here. And you're going like, what? God sent me here? And we go on to verse 8. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. This is the big picture, right? This is God's plan. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. Joseph, again, had come full circle. When he was in the prison, he couldn't see God's plan. But now he could see it so clearly that God allowed his brothers to do this in order that he might be in a position to help many people. Now, again, in the prison, he didn't know that. And right now, you might be in the prison, and you say, God, I don't know what you're doing in my life. I don't know why this is happening. Things are not going the way that I planned. They never do, do they? Uh, But you're in the dark. But maybe someday you'll know why things have happened in a certain way. That's true in our lives. We do learn certain things, and someday we're going to have to wait until heaven. But you need to trust Jesus. You need to trust Jesus. I I do that all the time. I think about this past week. You know, I've got issues (laughs) like all of you do, you know. i got things that cause me anxiety. I've got, you know, things going on that I have to handle, and I don't know what to do. And and I just give it to Jesus, Lord. This is yours. You take it. You take it. You take it. You take it. I'll follow you. You guide me. You help me to deal with this. You help me to become more like Jesus Christ. It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about your power. Just, you know... Help me, you know. That's what we need to do. We need just to trust Jesus. Even though nothing makes sense, we need to trust Jesus. I know that's hard to do. It's the most difficult thing to do, but that's where we need to grow. We need to trust Jesus. Now, he goes on. He says, He made me father 
the Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. I want to see you. Dad, you shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have, I will provide you for you there because five years of famine are still to come. They're only two years into it, right? Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Bring the whole family down. I'm going to set you up in the most plush area where you can shepherd your flocks. I'm going to take care of you. Come on down. He had forgiven them. He wanted to show love to them. He wanted to show grace to them. And so they came down, all 70 of them, of the nation of Israel, only 70 people were a part of that family. And it was all part of God's plan. It was all part of God's plan because what happened was is they came down and they had a wonderful life, but eventually Joseph died, Pharaoh died, they forgot about Joseph. And what happened was is they became so numerous, the Egyptians were afraid of them, so they made them slaves. Seems like we're going around and around here. Joseph's a slave. You know, he brings them down. They become slaves. For 400 years, they're slaves. Now, why in the world would God do that? 400 years. Well, God had a reason for it. And the reason was is that if he kept his people up in Canaan, they would never become a great nation because he had so many different peoples up there that are wiping each other out. He needed to put them in an incubator. And in this incubator, over 400 years, they grow from 70 people to a million people. Now they could be a nation. And then Moses comes and God releases the people. They go up to the promised land and they become a nation. And from that nation comes our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the big plan. That's what we see throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, the scarlet red. We see the plan of redemption. We see the gospel. We see God's plan for you and me. But a lot of people paid a price for that plan. A lot of people were slaves in Egypt, and they never knew what the plan was. That's the advantage that we have, is we can look back and see how God put all the plan together to bring us to what we're going to celebrate this week during Holy Week. Jesus Christ sacrificed on the cross, and we are so much, so much more blessed than Joseph because... We are Christ followers. We have the Holy Spirit within us. We, we have the Bible. You know, Joseph didn't have a Bible sitting around. For... <laughs> His story's in Genesis, okay? You know? He didn't have anything to read. And look what we have to read and what we, we can follow. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Man, we got so much more than Joseph had to live the Christian life. But thank God that Joseph was so God-centered in the way that he approached his life. Well, verse 15, when Joseph, uh, or excuse me, let's go back. Uh, what happens is that, uh, that uh, Jacob dies. The father dies. And the brothers are still, <laughs> they still think that Joseph is going to kill him. They're thinking, Joseph's thinking, okay, well, you know, Dad's not going to be crazy about me killing the whole family, so I'll wait till Dad dies, and then I'll kill him. Uh, so verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. You see, they planned ahead. 
They said, listen, Dad, you know, we're really kind of nervous about you dying and everything. <laughs> so could you write out this little note here so we can send it on to Joseph? So these are Jacob's words from the dead. Uh, verse 17, this is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Why did he weep? He wept because his brothers did not understand grace. They did not understand forgiveness. They just didn't get it. It didn't compute to them that someone who sold you into slavery could ever forgive you. They were always watching with a wary eye. And, and Joseph, I believe, this time just broke down because he, they just couldn't understand that he had forgiven them. They couldn't fathom that. And I'll tell you what, friends, a lot of you who have been Christ followers, believers for years, you still don't understand the grace of God. Yes, you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and not in your good works, and you're living for God, but you're still kind of living under a works orientation, and you're still kind of saying, well, you know, I've got to do everything right here, and, and you're always condemning yourself. You're always saying, oh, I'm such a terrible Christian because I'm not doing this, and every time you come out to church, you know, I'm talking about something or somebody else is talking about something in a small group. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm not doing that, and God must think that I'm just such a waste, and... You know, I'm not doing anything for him and all that kind of stuff. And you're condemning, 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 condemning. That's all you can do. You live a condemned life. But the Bible says there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. Right? Amen? There is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. So it's time for you to stop condemning yourself and start to experience a love that God has for you. And I tell you what, some of you have been programmed for so many years for works and for, you know, pleasing God. And again, that's what we need to do. But that you're not living a life of freedom and love. You're living a life of duty. And you're frustrated. But you know it's the right thing to do in a sense of what you understand. But friends, you need to, again, get on Google. <laughs> Bible passages on love. Bible passages on grace. Bible passages on freedom. And you need to read those verses over and over again and probably focus all year on it and just saturate your mind with God's grace and your love and your freedom and say, God, I can't understand your grace. I'm just like Joseph's brothers. I just don't get it. Show me your grace. I'm so imperfect. I'm so sinful. Show me you still love me just the way I am. Yeah. Don't walk with a burden you don't... There's enough burdens in life. Don't be adding to them, man. Remove the burden. Say, I'm free in Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'm a sinner, and we'll keep working on that with Jesus, but I'm going to enjoy my relationship with God because He loves me. And I, I just challenge you as you go through Holy Week here. Oh, just drink in the love. As you think about the cross, drink in the love. As you think about the resurrection... Drink in the love. Let it be so rich.
in your life. That's true. You need to forgive other people. Keep working on that, okay? But I think for a lot of you, the real issue is you need to forgive yourself. You need to embrace the grace of Christ and stop condemning yourself for what happened five or ten years ago in your life or twenty years ago in your life. God's forgiven you. He's not thinking about it. Why are you? Why do you continue to condemn yourself? Embrace the grace this Holy Week. Every time you see a cross, every time you think about the fact that Easter's coming, say, God loves me, man. God loves me the way I am. I am perfect self. I'm never going to be close to, you know, what Jesus Christ is. You know, I want to continue to be in that way. And, And again, you know, there's... Some of you are too comfortable in your Christianity, okay? <laughs> I'm talking to those of you who are perfectionists. I'm talking to those of you who have to live by the rules. I'm talking to those of you who are always down on yourself. That's who I'm addressing, okay? I live there, all right? Experience the freedom of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the story of Joseph. It's so powerful, Lord. Thank you for the illustration of how he always kept you in his focus, no matter what type of life he was experiencing. And I pray that we might embrace it as well, that we might embrace the grace this week, the embrace that you've already given to us. We just need to to live it out. In Christ's name, amen. We've got our ushers come forward at this time. I'm going to gather our gifts to the Lord. Hey, uh, we've had a Japan relief fund going for about five weeks here, and we're concluding that fund today. And I think about $3,900 has come in so far. So let's thank God for the generosity of our family here at Springbrook. And again, these funds are going directly to relief for Japanese people. They're going toward blankets and food and kerosene and just the basic needs for these people who are still suffering. Continue to pray. We don't see it as much in the news these days, but nothing's changed over there. And keep praying about the nuclear situation. But, uh, yeah, let's, let's pray right now. Dear Lord, we pray for the people in Japan, people that you love. We pray for the Christ followers, the believers there. We pray that they would continue, as I know they are, reaching out in love. Thank you that we can give to this effort so that resources, basic resources can be given to people in need in the name of Jesus. In Christ's name.